This is Family Office Intel at Dentons, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actual ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the Modern Family Office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Molly Simmons. Molly is the founding partner of McFarland Partners, a boutique firm focused on private investments, business strategies, especially for family offices and family and founder-owned businesses. She has deep expertise in strategy, finance, investments, and family offices. She spent decades working with closely held businesses and served over 30 public and private boards. Uh, prior to uh, her firm, she was a managing director of investments at a large multi-billion dollar single family office and served as a general partner in two private equity funds. She has an undergraduate degree from Northwestern and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Today, we'll talk about several items, including the formation of an investment function in a family office. We'll talk about best practices around the chief investment officer role within the family office space. We'll cover direct investing, both from the potential pitfall perspective and then how to execute effectively. And we'll also have a conversation around diligence factors to consider around potential investment ideas. So Molly, let's get started. How did you get your particular start in the family office space? Well, thank you very much, Edward, for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure. Well, early on in my career, I started out in strategy with um, strategic management consulting, working in lots of different industries. I then went on to corporate strategy and M&A. In post-business school, I spent decades in private equity investing. I was a partner in private equity funds. And there I worked with family and founder-owned businesses a lot of the time, you know, partnering with those management teams, helping them grow. And often was the first outside institutional capital coming into those companies. Often it was their first board, their first strategic plan, or their first um, acquisition plan. Um, and later in my career, I was recruited by a large single-family office called Polag Companies to be a managing director on their investment team. And I did a lot of work on private investments there, including investments in private equity funds, direct co-investments with those funds, and also direct private investments. So, for example, a direct minority investment, um, maybe it was in partnership with other families. So, you know, partnering with other single family offices, maybe it was an independent sponsor or a management team. And then I also worked on a new platform acquisition strategy for the family. And so this would be different than minority. This would be a control acquisition platform. And from there, I went on to found McFarland Partners, which is private investments and business strategies for multiple family offices and family-owned enterprises. So, Molly, as you were setting up some of those platforms and, and being part of that, how does a family traditionally set up their investment function for their family office? Well, it's different for every family. But one thing that I encourage families to do before just jumping in and copying what another family is doing is to consider a few key questions. And then I'll go into how some families set it up. The first is who are the family stakeholders? And that gets to the number of the owners, any kind of governance um, and informal or formal expectations about family members who are perhaps not direct owners or operators. The second bucket of questions is 
do you have a vision or a goal for the shared family capital? Because your shared family capital goal might be different than another family that maybe is focused all on liquidity and distributions. You might be focused on, let's say, you know, building wealth for the next generation. And, you know, another bucket is, you know, what are the functions that you need to, to service those goals? And then where is their alignment in terms of uh, alignment across the family and alignment um, with the needs of any partners? But many families, you know, fall into a few key buckets. Some um, might outsource the investment function for their family office. Maybe it's to a multifamily office with a wealth manager or an outsourced CIO inside of that. Uh, also, maybe using a private capital bank or consultants. Some of those will have the family having discretion. Others, the family still needs, um, the family outsources that discretion. Um, some families do a hybrid approach, especially if they have an area of expertise. So, for example, some families might handle the investments in private businesses on their own internally, and they might outsource public investments or vice versa. Um, a recent example of, of somebody that I was working with is a family that created its wealth in real estate development, and they continue to do all their real estate investments on their own, but they outsource the management of other parts of the family capital. And then other families, based on their size, scale, and needs, they have the investment functions fully insourced. So they have a deep team of staff. They handle all the investment needs for the family and its entities. And, you know, some act as if there's one client, the family, others will even customize it for different members uh, of the family. I think one thing that has helped families in, in setting it up is understanding, you know, are they more of an operator? Are they more of an investor? Or are they really more of an asset allocator or even an aggregator where they might want to be building uh, an office where they can take on other families over time? Right. So you mentioned a couple of interesting uh, aspects about that every family has to take it into consideration of how they're looking at it for building up their investment shop. Let's take two examples and maybe that'll help bookend and maybe provide some concrete examples for our listeners. And that's what would you do if you, you walked into a family and they, they were newly liquid from a liquidity event and they wanted to set up an investment function and they had the, certainly the resources and size to do that. What would you do in that a situation like that? So for a newly liquid family, often they are figuring out what they want to look like in three to five years Maybe they don't really know what they need inside or outside in terms of insourced or outsourced resources. And a newly liquid family often might invest assets with or through outsourced partners. And maybe they have an internal quarterback, like one or two people. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's um, a, a hired manager who manages that outsourced investment function while they refine their strategy and goals, or maybe they determine where they really want to lean down the road. Sometimes liquidity events happen without a lot of time and preparation. So they might only have, you know, a few months to, to see that coming. And all of a sudden they're faced with a large amount of liquidity and they just, they need to manage it and put it to work um, quickly. All right. So let's fast forward a little bit. That family has been been successful for the last 10 years and they've been established this investment function. And they give you a call and say, Molly, 
what are we doing right? What should we be doing better? What, what are your traditionally you've seen in families that have been at it for a while that there's some ideas you would tell them? So an established family office might have a very deep internal investment team or it might not. So when I look at an established family office, they usually have internal infrastructure. They have some staff um, probably going beyond the one or two coordinators or a quarterback. And they might even be handling a lot of the investment functions on their own. And for them, it is easier to ramp up from some existing infrastructure. So for example, maybe they have been doing fund investments and now they want to start evolving to do more direct co-invest or direct privates. Well, they might find it easier to just add one or two people to the team versus, you know, the earlier families kind of starting from ground zero and they don't even have the strategy mapped out. So it's, it's harder for them to build all that up front. Um, the established family office has the flexibility of doing some scaling over time. And the other thing that the established family office usually will have is a pretty good network of other resources. And sometimes those resources are other family offices where they can, maybe they've been leaning on them to partner on some investments and now they really like that area and they're building, let's say, their own biotech group or their own technology, media and telecom group. You know, maybe I'll give you another example of a real life example of a family that's somewhat in the middle, because I do see this happening more and more. They have um, generation one, G1 created the wealth through growing a really big company, company A, and they sold 60% of that company to a private equity firm about four years ago, but they kept running it. So generation one and generation two were running it and the family invested those proceeds with their family office. They used investment management services um, with a multifamily office doing a lot of that work. And it was a pretty conservative asset allocation strategy, leaning a lot more towards wealth preservation and liquidity. But today, what's happening is that big company is now being sold by that private equity firm and G1 and G2 will no longer run it. And they're going to have a very big liquidity event that's actually going to be bigger than their initial liquidity event. Well, now, so they have this established office. They've been outsourcing some functions. Now they want to take a lot of that new liquidity and continue doing what they have been doing, which is owning, operating, and building businesses. So they're going to keep their traditional asset allocation with this manager. But now they're looking at bringing on resources to help them go find, buy, and build companies that are not exactly like the ones that they ran, but you know, I'll call them one or two clicks away. So they're in the same industry or an analogous industry. So let's talk about the, the human capital side of a, a group like that's that. And I think some of this might speak to some of your experience. Can you grow an, an investment team internally or is, it, is a lot of it going to be borrowed uh, and, and lateral hires from other organizations and private equity or investment banking or other areas uh, to come in and fill that team. Because as you talked about the, the scaling, uh, that could be an interesting component to it as families are thinking about that. Maybe they're new to, new to this or they've been at it for several decades. You know, by grow, do you mean somebody that has skill set A and they basically evolved a skill set A plus B over time? Or you mean grow like yep. you're hiring that in? 
Yeah, growing them internally versus uh, uh, bringing in an external expert for that that particular function. Can you do that realistically in a family office? Absolutely, you can, but you have to think about the time that it takes to learn that, you know, and, you know, do you have the right partners to help you learn a particular area? So it might be time. So for example, do you have maybe the years that it would take for somebody to gain expertise in a particular area? And the other thing to consider is if you do develop that expertise, let's say um, you want to develop the expertise of being an individual stock picker. And so you're, you're developing your own people Maybe you hire outside, but you're developing your own people. Then the question is, if you spend so much time doing that and building that, are you then going to be fully utilizing that? Meaning, is that a real key part of your investment strategy and core in-source function going forward? Or even if you build that up, is it likely to be a pretty small part? And so it's not really going to be worth it to build that up. Um, in terms of building and you know training and developing people, Certainly, you have partners, whether it's um, if you're using outsourced investment consultants, outsourced managers, but many times great partners for families are their trusted advisors and other families. So, for example, maybe your family does a lot of direct private investing, but you haven't done very much in aircraft. But you partner with another family who has, you know, a third of their portfolio in that area. They made their money in that area. They're great at that area. So let's say you ended up doing 10 deals and your vice president was teamed up with their vice president. Well, all of a sudden, over a couple of years, your internal team, they're going to know how you find those deals, how you diligence those deals, um, and how you close and manage those deals. But, you know, it takes time. So it can be done. The question is, is it worth it in the end? And do you have the time to do it? Or are you better off um, contracting with specific expertise of, you know, what you need when you need it? So one of the elements that I've been thinking about from here is really this chief investment officer in a family office. Is, is there anybody that can do it all? All the different asset classes, all the different strategies from there. And I, I can guess what you're going to say. But how do you make that decision of finding somebody that can be a good enough fit for what you're trying to do since the investment world is so large and there's so many different strategies that you can try to uh, put in place? Well, you know, I'm smiling here. I mean, it really depends upon what it all means. So, for example, if it's largely a traditional asset allocation and portfolio construction job, maybe it's very similar to what somebody was doing um, at a private capital bank where they were serving other families. And let's say a single family wants pretty much the exact same thing. Well, then doing it all is a great fit with what that person's already been doing. But often families want more customization, more flexibility, and their needs evolve and change, right? They have new liquidity. Um, there's a now gen, next gen evolution about what they want to do strategically. And it's really hard to be a master of everything and, and be that Jack or Jackie of all trades. You know, I've had the pleasure of working with so many incredibly talented and skilled CIOs. And they're usually not only terrific investors, but they have this ability to quickly learn about 
whether it's an investment or an industry or a structure, and they can provide a wide array of insights and, and investment services to the often very unique, very specific and changing needs of one family. One thing that I've seen in the best of the best CIOs is they have great networks that they can rely on because you're right. You're, there's no way that everybody can know everything about everything. So having that network of, you know, is there an institutional partner? Is there a consultant or advisor? But often is there another family or another family CIO where you can compare notes and even where your expertise might be complementary um, and you can help each other be a broader skill set for both families. Um, you know, in, in my my perspective, the best practices really include a team approach and the team is, you know, your insourced or your outsourced team. I don't think that everybody can be everything all the time. Maybe I'll give you a couple examples here. You know, somebody who's a very experienced pension fund manager might be a great investor, great CIO, but they might be quite challenged when a family now wants to go acquire a new platform company or create a direct private equity portfolio. Well, they might want to partner with others or bring in resources. They're smart enough to know, like, I know enough about this maybe to be dangerous, but I haven't done a lot of this in my career. And those needs might ebb and flow. You know, the family might make some investments there and then they might pull back you know, so that that CIO has to know how much resources do they need and when. On the other side of it, you could have a CIO whose background is primarily in privates, private equity acquisitions, but maybe they haven't done very much in, let's say, a certain industry, you know, biotech or Bitcoin, or, or maybe it's certain investment structures like um, equity tranches of collateralized loan obligations. You know, there, if they can rely on their network of resources, it will help them, you know, fill in any gaps and, and, and bridge where, where they need to. Given that background around the different roles and the experiences that you mentioned, there's a lot of decision-making around what to bring in-house and what to, uh, you know, to outsource. How do and how should families make the decision around the, the make or buy decision for uh, their investment structures? It's, it sounds like it's a very complex way to do it because you're fighting against the desires of the, the family uh, versus expertise that's in-house and out. How, how, do you, uh, how do you help families and how should families be thinking about that particular decision? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it also goes back to some of our earlier conversation about, you know, what is the vision here for the shared family capital and who are the stakeholders? Because early on, it might be one thing, 10 years from now, it might be something different. But when families look at that build decision, when they're saying, okay, I think I might want to take this all internal. I want to build up an internal family office with an internal investment team. You know, why are they doing that? Well, it often comes down to wanting control, like full control over all decisions. Another big factor is customization. I want to do things that perhaps I can't do if I use an outsourced um, solution. And that customization becomes increasingly important if there's increased complexity to the family, either the family 
um, stakeholder dynamics, or often maybe there's other holdings there that are making it more complex. You know, a third key bucket is privacy. And sometimes families, they don't want anybody else to know anything else about what they're doing. And then the last bucket is this independence and alignment, meaning they don't want to be worried about, are they having somebody look for the best investments for them in one area, but they maybe have incentives to give them one particular manager or one particular investment. They often want to make sure there's a really clear cut separation and that they have pure independence and alignment where that staff is working only for that family. You know, but there's a flip side to that. Um, I can imagine there's a lot of trade-offs there. There's a lot of trade-offs. Now, I should also mention sometimes families go down the path of bringing things inside for the reasons I cited for that their own family. Sometimes they evolve into becoming a multifamily office. So they want to take that in-house. They do the work for their family and then they might take on other families as well. But the flip side to consider is a lot of people get it. Okay. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of cost to build, you know, to establish your own family office and the investment team. What they might not also think about are things like it's also a lot of cost and resources to maintain that office and investment function. So once you've built it, you really want to use it for how you've built it, because if you're not going to use it that way, you've really built up a pretty um, sizable and, and expensive structure. But outside of cost, I think there's a few key questions to consider. You know, one is will it really on a net basis be more efficient? So that could be net efficient in cost or time. But if you look out the, the net net, because you have to pay for your own people and provide incentives, you know, is it going to be better in the end? Because there are certain economies of scale, right? So you almost have to be big enough if you're going to take all of those functions inside where you can support a staff of a handful of people or 10 or 20 or more people. You know, another bucket that's important to consider is even if you do in-source, where and when will you be able to get best-in-class, you know, insights and work? So sometimes if a certain part of the investment function is constantly changing or, you know, you might still want to have your outside tax expertise because tax law is constantly changing, you know, there's some places where you can really afford and keep and utilize best in class with your internal team. There's other places where you say, gosh, I'm not going to be able to keep up with best in class because it's always changing. Um, Or I can't afford best in class because that's a different level of team or, or number of people. Another thing to consider is, okay, now that I have these internal functions, can they handle the wide and often changing needs can they be flexible or am I going to have people that are really overutilized? Okay, I built this, but people are still stretched or underutilized. You know, I built up um, this team to be direct stock pickers, but we're probably not going to do enough to keep them busy. I built up this team to do early stage biotech, but I realize now that's, you know, it's not going to be a big enough piece of the portfolio going forward. In the last one, you know, it just gets to alignment, meaning are you hire these people, 
you build this up. Do you have enough alignment with them to keep this going for the long term? And that comes to things like incentives, but also is what you're looking to do aligned with what they want out of their career? So those are some things to consider on the the other side of, you know, jumping into build, but just wait, you know, look, look at these questions. And sometimes it's actually doing the math on the dollars and the time and, and the utilization. What about if you're considering using some outsourced solutions, what are a couple of things that you would think about that that's important? Because everyone will say that they can, they can accomplish all the, the, the characteristics that you mentioned, independence, security, control, customization, but the proof is in the pudding. What are some things that you've seen that have been good when you're talking to an external provider that can be helpful if a family is looking to outsource some of this investment function? Yeah. And I mean, some actually do a hybrid approach. They're not doing all one or the other. I mean, in fact, they might hybrid and say, where we have the strongest angle, whether it's operating and investing, we take that in-house and we think we can build the appropriate team to do that, but maybe we're going to outsource to advisors, consultants, service providers, or partner with other families in those other areas. Um, so what to look for on the parts that you're either outsourcing or where you're relying on your partners is, you know, where is there that complementary expertise? So, okay, I'm not good in this industry, but I see we'd like to have exposure there. How can I partner with somebody else who's got a proven track record? Also where there's alignment, and this gets to, you know, is somebody aligned with your interests or is somebody aligned to pitch you a product, a fund, a platform where they get paid on that, but not necessarily aligned with your returns? And that's where it's, you know, looking at if you're partnering with somebody do they have any other incentives that are coming from another entity, another family, another platform? Do they have incentives if you come in on a platform? Just knowing that upfront helps you understand, okay, where am I getting the independence and where am I getting the alignment? So if somebody is, let's say, partnering with another family on a particular vehicle, Maybe they have complementary skill sets. Family A is great at healthcare. Family B is great at manufacturing. Family B brought family A into some manufacturing related investments. Well, if family B doesn't have any other incentives other than, you know, making that investment work great, but if family B is getting all these other fees, incentives, or maybe carried interest off that deal, you know, that that family that's leaning on them should know, okay, well, here's where we're maybe misaligned because they might not get those incentives. And the same goes true if somebody's, you know, you know, picking private equity funds for you or picking hedge funds for you. It's just knowing where is their independence and where is their alignment. Direct investing. That's an area that is certainly uh, drawn a lot of popular uh, interest into learning more about it. Some people have uh, taken a plunge into it. Why is it so popular? And why is there sometimes families will almost demonstrate an allergy to working with with funds to get at direct private equity? 
It is certainly very popular. And uh, in fact, I just co-authored a couple articles about that with um, with uh, Pat McCluskey. And so it's it's popular. This this um, this study that came out from Fintrix in, in 2020 cited that over 65 percent of the newly formed family offices say that they're doing direct private equity. And that's up from like 40 percent. So. A lot of people are talking about it. A lot of people are saying that they're doing it. Um, I don't think, and from what I see, it doesn't mean that as many families are doing it on a consistent basis with a significant part of their portfolio over time. Meaning, okay, I did a, a buyout or a venture deal, but I might not be doing that much every year. But okay, why? Why is this all the buzz? What you know? What's happening? I think the popularity of directs is certainly driven by an interest in returns. And many family investors think I can write a big check. I'd like to not pay somebody else fees or incentives, meaning I want to cut out the management fee or the carried interest that might go into a private equity fund. Um, Another reason is they don't want to have the commitment of their capital over the time period that a, let's say a private equity fund or other funds might invest the capital and then wait for those proceeds. Often that's called the J curve. They have to keep investing, but yet the portfolio hasn't yet grown and they don't yet have liquidity. Some other families are interested in directs, you know, outside of the return part, but maybe they want to learn about a certain industry. So they maybe are going to do some smaller direct investments. And if they like it, they might do a bigger investment. Um, Another often cited interest reason is because influence. They want to use the influence they have in an industry or the expertise to help drive value in a company. And they don't think they can do that in a private equity fund or other fund. And um, some have a certain set of values that the family is trying to push forth through their investments. And they feel that they can get at that a little bit better by choosing individual direct investments versus funds, whether it's an ESG value or or something along those lines. So those are all the reasons that many people say that they want to get in and do direct private investing. But I... (laughs) I have a great saying from a good friend of mine that likes to say, remember, 20% of zero is zero. Meaning, you know, if you really don't have the skills and the expertise and the resources for strong direct investment performance, you're really not better off saving, let's say, that 2% management fee or that 20% in carried interest. In fact, you know, if you can't believe that your program can, you know, meet or beat basic um, direct private equity performance hurdles, you might be better off partnering with others such as deeply experienced private equity and venture capital fund managers, um, independent sponsors. So there you kind of have a hybrid. You're going to partner with somebody who's an experienced sponsor, but it's on a deal by deal. Um, there's search funds. And then there's other family investors. Um, Sometimes I think people get into it because they think it's, you know, it's certainly fun and sexy, but uh, I often have this discussion with families about, you know, there are thousands of private equity firms out there doing direct investments and they've been doing it for decades. 
So if you want to jump into that, also at a time where there's a lot of liquidity in the market in terms of availability of credit, you have a lot of um, dry powder and private equity firms, you have corporates with very hungry balance sheets looking for growth. If you want to jump into that water, you as a family, as a direct investor, have to really have a clear angle and strategy on how you're going to source diligence and close those deals if you want to expect um, good returns. Molly, you've done some work abroad and worked with some investments that are there and you've worked with some very international families. What, what are some nuances that you would consider when investing and running an investment uh, opportunity uh, when you're outside your home country or you're outside the United States? Yeah, well, this kind of dovetails with something I was going to add to the last question is whether it's a fund or a direct or international or U.S., some guidelines are, you know, lean in where you are relevant, unique, and can add value and partner where your angle is weaker, you know, meaning just because you can write a big check, whether it's abroad or it's in a fund or direct, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And um, you really need to think about why do I want this in the first place? Why am I seeing this particular investment? And why am I the next best investor or partner in this particular, whether it's a fund or or a deal? Now, um, my experience is deepest in the U.S., but in terms of investments in other parts of the country, I think about uh, a, a couple key buckets. One, depending upon the investment, what about the investors, whether it's sourcing, diligencing, underwriting, approval and management processes, what translates to that particular investment outside the U.S.? And where does it not translate? Meaning where are you saying, well, what I do here isn't really applicable. Another bucket of things to consider are risk factors that will come up in almost any investment outside the U.S., Things like currency, um, operating, what I call boots on the ground, like human capital risk. Do you, you know, can you hire the right people? Um, also, culturally, does it work? Infrastructure, political instability, uh, government, and regulatory. So, meaning you might think you can be protected by copyright raw law here in the U.S. or, um, you know, your competitors can't copy what you're doing, for example, but in other parts of the world, that might not be enforced the same way. So I think some nuances as you think about this are not just those buckets of, you know, what translates and what are the key risk areas, but okay, why do I want this in the first place? And what are the different ways to get it? So maybe I'll give a couple examples. If a family has really deep, expertise in operating a company in country X, it might feel very comfortable. Great. We can lead a control leverage buyout with that one deal in country X. Well, let's say a family doesn't have that level of deep expertise, but it wants exposure to country X. Well, there are some other options that maybe are less risky than doing a direct leverage buyout with one particular company 
you know, should they look at a fund manager, a local country fund manager, or even better, maybe it's a regional fund manager. So they don't have all risks in one country or one company. They can partner with other families that might have complementary expertise. Maybe they've been doing deep um, direct investing in that particular area. Or maybe they can find a U.S.-based fund manager that they know well that has exposure to country X or region Y. And also, you know, if they're, they like the dynamics of that country or the supply demand there, let's say, there's often public fund alternatives to get some of that exposure in a more liquid and, and approach um, versus, you know, maybe a risky or illiquid approach where you might be um, tied up and can't get out of it. When you're looking at a satellite family office, and ability for families to look outside their borders, right? So they, they're in country X, as you mentioned, and they're looking to go into country Y because of investment opportunities. Why is that growing in popularity? And, and how should families think about setting up operations like that? Are there some key factors of why you would do that? I mean, some of those, the big ones have, been, have hit the media, certainly in Singapore and other areas, that very high profile families that have done that. And, and the other way around, inbound into the U.S. What, uh, what do you think is driving that? Well, again, it depends upon the individual family and what they want to do. But um, here's what I've seen happen and, and kind of, you know, what what's driving it. I mean, certainly some are looking to have investments in the particular area where they have the satellite. So they might want a satellite in the U.S. or another country because they want that boots on the ground. They want that direct access to those investments, whether they're directs or funds or partnerships with other families in that area. Sometimes the satellite is also driven by okay, I want to partner with this particular investment team. I want this human capital and that human capital lives there. So I'm going to have the satellite office there. Um, so it can be the people, it can be the, the actual investments themselves, and it can be the network of families in that area. So, you know, I've seen some that want to have um, some people in the U.S. because they want to have networks with U.S.-based family offices and enterprise and create some complementary partnerships where those U.S.-based families can bring the international families in on a co-invest. And perhaps those U.S. families might invest um, abroad with those other families. You know, some choose specific geographic locations to manage tax implications, of course. But, um, you know, I've definitely seen the satellite option. I've seen where it might not be for all investments. So sometimes I've seen an international group of families that backed two people in the U.S. for the specific purpose of gaining exposure to U.S., private equity investments, direct investments in companies and partnering with other families. And they kept the rest of their investment staff back in the, the home country. And that particular team, you know, did nothing but privates. They did no, um, they did no public investments. They didn't have to manage things like, you know, liquidity management uh, for the family uh, as well. When you think of venture capital and family offices, what are your thoughts there and how do you think families should look at earlier stage types of investments compared to the 
more established areas that they might have more experience with already? Well, (laughs) I would say, you know, private venture capital, direct or fund investments, it can be terrific or it can be a disaster. And it really comes down to strategy and execution. And, um, you know, with any investment or an asset or a sub-asset allocation, you, you got to always ask yourself, well, why are we here? Why are we doing it in the first place? Why do we want this? Are we seeking a return, diversification, liquidity, education values, you know, or, you know, is it sexy and fun? Is it something that I saw XYZ family do? And then depending upon those goals, how can you do it to optimize your, you know, risk reward ratio? So what I've seen is some families, they have very deep experience in venture. In fact, they might've created their wealth that way, or they have really deep understanding in sectors that are in venture, like early stage tech or um, biotechnology, medical devices. And some of those families might even have very deep investment teams, even if the family's not a venture expert, their investment teams are, but they have an overall portfolio strategy. They know how venture fits into it. They have sourcing, diligence, and closing and managing. You know, it's part of a, a clearly established and professionally run investment program. And one important thing is they also usually have plans for ongoing capital needs, whether it's capital calls for the funds or portfolio company follow-on investments, because oftentimes venture companies are not cash flow positive. Where I see the problem arise is often families get into venture, either funds or directs early on, because it seems like it's an easy entry into private equity. And that also happens because sometimes the amount of money that a venture venture stage company is raising or even a venture fund is smaller. You know, it might be smaller than the 500 million or billion dollar plus buyout fund or the hundred million dollar buyout that of an established companies that other people are participating in. So they might be able to get in for less than a million or less than 5 million. So some families say, okay, I can dip my toe into these investments uh, or funds without much risk. I'll, you know, kind of do a handful of these small venture investments. And I kind of like having some influence or control over these small investments. The challenge comes when that small check size becomes a substitute for investment skill, investment strategy, conviction, and risk management. And then- Meaning I'm only putting a, a little bit of money into this so I don't have to go as deep on the diligence. Yeah, you know, it's just, this is just 100,000. This is 500,000. My buddy's in this one. Well, what happens sometimes is, you know, family investors can become over allocated to early stage illiquid venture pretty quickly, meaning they all of a sudden have a large portfolio of those toes dipped into the water. Worse yet, they might be not just, you know, over allocated in a venture, they could become unknowingly concentrating in industries that they don't know. They have limited direct knowledge. They don't have as much influence. And those funds are calling capital and maybe they don't have vintage year diversification, 
that's a problem. Or, well, now my, my toes in the water, those little companies, they all need more money and I'm going to get diluted if I didn't plan for the follow-on investment. I mean, it kind of goes back to a Warren Buffett quote, which is, you know, invest in what you know. And I would say invest in what you know, or you or your aligned partners know, just writing a little check um, shouldn't substitute for your investment strategy and skill. It it actually can bite you uh, in the end because you're going to have too many of those illiquid investments that you really can't manage and might not understand. Further, I mean, it's, you know, some people think, well, if I put a bunch of these together, you know, they might not really understand the risk reward, like meaning the return expectations of certain asset classes. Well, are they going to take venture risk and get like mezzanine returns, for example? Should they have more of their money in a more moderate risk, moderate reward, but it's safer um, than venture where, you know, they have to swing for the fence on almost every single deal. Put your CIO hat back on for a minute here and give us some of your favorite due diligence questions. (laughs) And which ones would you recommend families keep in their back pocket? And also which ones might not be as useful, but might seem useful on the surface? Hmm. Well, I do have lists um, for different kinds of investments, but on direct investments, I'll go there. There's a couple that I almost always ask when I'm talking with the management team, or even if there's another partner, right? Let's say that there's somebody else that's a controlling shareholder. You know, what's your special sauce? Wide open question. And it usually gets the team, the company talking about, well, is it their team? Is it their product? You know, do they have something proprietary? Are they in a part of the market or the country that, you know, the others can't get to? If they know it and they can articulate it well, that's also a good sign. If they struggle with it, it's like, well, if you don't know what it is and you just have some good performance, you know, we might have a a problem. But that question, uh, often when I ask it of different people around that, whether it's the management of the company or the partners, you get a good feel for you know, how strong that is and how deeply entrenched that is. And it's kind of a a more relaxed way of asking about somebody's strategy and operations, and it gets them talking about what they're excited about. Um, There's so many questions about the diligence with the team, the operations and the financials. But um, one thing that's very important on directs is the partnership, because you're usually partnering with either that management team, it's often directly with the management team or with other partners. So I like to ask about what's most important in your next best partner. And usually what comes out are things like, you know, do they want somebody to be totally passive, involved? Do they not really want another investment partner, but they just have to do this? You know, do you see the earmarkings of something that's going to be adversarial? And you just get them to talk about what's most important from the partnership. I think this also comes into play when you're thinking about negotiations later. The more that you can reflect that you've got some mutual understanding about that partnership, I think that bodes well for the the negotiations of the particular investment. Um, I could go into more detail, but I'll, you know, I, I think... 
What's an answer that you hear that if you hear from one of the questions that, that's, that's on your detailed list that would cause you to give some pause and, and start thinking about that? That's a particularly good one. Well, <laughs> well, I often ask on a direct basis. And we okay. have the next three hours to go over these. So, Yeah. Okay. Well, if I, if I ask on a direct basis, let's say we've just gone through the strategy, the financials, usually there's discussion about that. And, and I ask about, okay, well, let's talk about how you really make your money. And if there's not, a, if, if, if you get deer in the headlights or, um, well, I don't know, didn't you just look at the P&L? Well, that's indicative that they might not know this type of customer, this type of product, or our real angle to profitability is X, Y, Z, or we have this proprietary, whatever, feature. If the company themselves really understands their special sauce and how they really make their money, great, that's a great sign. And you can kind of validate that, number one, but then you can build on that as a partner. Okay, now I get it. This is part of the angle. How can I bring my resources, money, people, introductions to the table? If they don't want to engage on that and they don't have a pretty good answer, it's sort of like, well, what do we not know here? And also, you know, how how can we really take this to the next level if we don't have a good understanding of that? Um, and if there's not a good engagement on the partnership discussion, I think you got to think about, mm, you know, is this a good place for you to partner, period? You know, and I have other questions on on funds and independent sponsors, too, if that's helpful. Totally. So, you know, the diligence on directs, you might end up having some crossover on that with some of the types of diligence questions that you look at when looking at a fund or maybe an independent sponsor or a search fund that's also pursuing an individual investment that you're coming in with that sponsor. But, you know, with funds, I often look at things like, let's understand what's your real angle. There's, you know, thousands of funds out there looking for them to articulate their differentiation, whether it's industry expertise, sourcing. So many people say that they're proprietary, you know, how are you really sourcing your investments? Um, And what are they doing to add value? Because in this frothy market, it's one thing to find the companies and be able to close them. It's another thing to be able to add value when you've you've already had to pay probably a pretty full market price. Um, Another set of questions when you are relying on others, right? So if you're relying on a fund manager or you're relying on an independent sponsor and, and you're effectively paying them some economics. So for example, let's say it's a management fee and carried interest. I usually like to ask some questions around, you know, talk to me about um, alignment and skin in the game, you know, with your team and, you know, with your investment partners. And what I often look for there are things like, do they have real skin in the game? Meaning if, if I'm the investor and I'm going to write a real check here with after-tax dollars, do my partners also have some real skin in the game? And if this goes well, are we both really happy? But if it doesn't go well, am I more unhappy than they are? Because, you know, maybe they haven't had to invest, you know, real money. It's maybe just, you know, you know, waived economics or something like that. And I also look for things like, is there alignment 
um, on things like governance. And if there's a team approach, let's say to a fund, how are they aligned? Is it just one person that's making the investment on behalf of the general partner or are all the the key people of the investment staff also investing in the fund? You know, I find so many people spend so much time diligencing a particular company or financials industry or a fund and their track record. And that's critically important. But few things are going to be as important as that alignment. If your partner that you're relying on has real skin in the game and when things go well, you're equally as happy as they are. And when things don't go well, you're equally as disappointed. Um, that's one of the most important areas of diligence, I think, is really focusing on that alignment. And when I get a bad answer there to your earlier question, that's usually a big walk away because if the investors are putting in whatever, a million, 10, 50 million, 100 million, but the partner is putting in a very little amount of, let's say, you know, what's meaningful or significant to them. It doesn't have to be the same dollar amount, but if it's, they're not putting in anything that's significant, that's, that's a red flag. Heads I win, tails I break even. Yeah, exactly. All right. Wrap, wrapping up here, your lesson learned and your top lesson learned that you've, you've had over your investing career. What's the one thing that you wish you had known when you got started that you know 100% today? Well, it's interesting because I think it dovetails with the question that you just asked. And in investing, there's a lot about finance and in business, there's a lot about strategy blended with finance. Um, Over my career, I would say one of the most important lessons is in the end, it's always about the people and the alignment, meaning you know, companies are not a spreadsheet. A fund isn't just numbers. It's the people that are making those investment decisions. It's the people that are running that. It is your partnerships are are made of people and it's how you are aligned with those people and, you know, the strength of of their skill set and their character. Um, So in the end, it's always about the people and the alignment. Thanks, Molly. I really appreciate you joining today and Thanks to all of you for, for listening in. If you'd like to get in touch with uh, Molly or if you have any questions, do send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation or so inclined, please subscribe to the channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated. Probably the best way that you can show your support to sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space, do check out our website. That's dentons.com forward slash family office. That's it. Bye everyone. Bye.